is from the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 8, beginning with verse 18 and reading through, it says verse 25 in the bulletin, I'm actually going to read through verse 28, so it won't all be up here. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 28. There Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to purpose. This is God's word. I pray that he would speak to us this morning. For the next month and a half or so, we're going to have a series of sermons that address some questions that I think non-Christians often ask, either consciously or unconsciously. Uh, Questions that have to do with some barriers that I think that people face that keep them from affirming Christianity. And I think that one of the greatest hurdles for people that keeps them from embracing and affirming Christianity is the fact that in the face of terrible suffering that we see in the world, Christians still preach that God is good and that he is supremely powerful. And these things seem incompatible with each other. If God were all-powerful, then he could alleviate or get rid of all the suffering that we see. And if God was supremely good, then he would certainly want to eliminate all this suffering. And therefore, since we see so much suffering in the world, that means that either God isn't powerful or he is not good or else that he just isn't real at all. And that Christians are just plain wrong. Um, On a macro level, we live in a world, of course, that sees war and famine and AIDS and oppression and terrorism and so on. But we know that suffering also strikes us individually. Uh, Just on Friday, I had a conversation with a good friend whose brother-in-law had just died of cancer, leaving behind a wife and two teenage children. Last weekend, at least two of you had to change your plans. You were going to go to Camp Caroline with us, and two of you couldn't because in two separate incidents, uh, a parent of somebody who was very close to you died, and you had to go to their funeral. So is God good? Then why does suffering only exist, but why does it seem to be so very widespread and so very severe? And you know what? That's a good question that people ask. 
And legitimate seekers have found this to be an insurmountable barrier in their affirming the God of Christianity. In the 1950s, a young evangelist by the name of Billy Graham had a partner, Charles Templeton. And possibly more gifted than Billy Graham, Charles Templeton led evangelistic crusades where he effectively and compellingly preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Charles Templeton himself had a crisis of faith and ultimately rejected Christianity and lived out his years, as best we know, as a non-Christian. And toward the end of his life, he reflected on his crisis of faith in an interview with Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel asked him, was there one thing in particular that caused you to lose your faith in God? And from here, I'll quote the interview. Uh, Charles Templeton thought for a moment. It was a photograph in Life magazine, he said finally. Really, I said, a photograph? How so? He narrowed his eyes a bit and looked off to the side as if he were viewing the photo afresh and reliving the moment. He explained, it was a picture of a black woman in northern Africa. They were experiencing a devastating drought and she was holding her dead baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. And I looked at the picture and I thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain. And as he emphasized the word rain, his bushy gray eyebrows shot up and his arms gestured toward heaven as if beckoning for a response. How could a loving God do this to that woman, he implored, as he got more animated, moving to the edge of his chair. Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. He does. Or that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew that it is not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain? He paused, letting the question hang heavily in the air. Then he settled back into his chair. That was the climactic moment, he said. And then I began to think further about the world being the creation of God. I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill, more often than not painfully, all kinds of people. The ordinary, the decent, the rotten. And it just became crystal clear to me that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a God who loves. I think Charles Templeton there articulates very well what the issue is for countless people and what the issue has been for centuries for people. Consider it this way. Suppose I saw a little child in danger, say about to be run over by a car, and I could easily step in and save this child with no risk to myself, but I choose not to and the child is hit and killed. Doesn't that make me a terrible person? Well, you know, God does that all the time. He sees the suffering. He could step in and, and eliminate it and fix it, but he doesn't. He stands by, his hands in his pocket, and watches it happen. And so Charles Templeton first calls him a fiend and then decides that this kind of God can't be real at all. Let me give you just a sampling, a, a bit of a brief litany of what we have seen and continue to see in our world. Things that God has apparently stood by and watched happen. Uh, a tsunami, suicide bombers, the World Trade Center and the Columbine High School, 
plane crashes, landslides and earthquakes that wipe out villages, cancer, abuse, murder, car accidents, children are raped and killed, families are torn apart by conflict and divorce, ruthless oppression, thousands of children dying of starvation or disease. And many of you have experienced suffering yourselves, cancer, loss of a loved one, divorce, and imprisonment, war, poverty, abuse, abandonment by a parent, depression, drugs, addictions. Now, I hope this isn't overkill. Maybe you're thinking, all right, Ken, enough, get it. But I mention all of these things not in order to be depressing, but in order to be real. Because this is the world that we find ourselves in. And this is the world to which Christians have the gall to say, God is loving, God is good. And so when people question Christianity because of the suffering that they see, they're not just blowing smoke. It's a legitimate issue and it deserves to be treated as such. And that's what I want to do this morning. And I want to do it, if I may, with kind of two approaches. I want to speak to your heads and then also, of course, to your hearts. I know that the question of suffering is usually a heart question. It's, it's emotional or, or a, a visceral response to the suffering that we see. And it comes that especially so when it is you yourself who is suffering or someone that you love is suffering. Right? It, it stops being an academic question when it's your chemotherapy that's about to begin or your daughter who is killed. And that's when the heart cries out, why? You know, how can a loving God do this? But we do want to speak to the mind as well, because there are some things, I think, that are helpful to understand. Some, some clarity and some perspective that I think will actually help our hearts. And so I want to start by asking the question, you know, why is there suffering at all? This, this is a necessary question to ask before we can begin to explore the relationship between God and suffering. Because I think we have a tendency to lump all suffering together. That is, when we ask the question, if God is love, why is there suffering? We tend to not make distinctions in terms of what we mean by suffering. And there are some distinctions that I think need to be made. For example, there are at least five reasons why we suffer. Five sources of suffering. The first is that sometimes we simply suffer because of the choices that we make. So I'm injured in a car accident because I chose to drive too fast or I was impaired. My marriage breaks down because I'm bad-tempered or jealous. I have cancer because I smoked for 20 years. I have other health issues because my eating and my exercise habits are poor. I lose my job because I don't put in a good effort at work or because my personality breeds conflict with coworkers or management. I lost my house because of years of financial irresponsibility. I mean, in these, in any, any of a countless number of ways, we bring suffering on ourselves sometimes because of the choices that we make. Secondly, we also suffer often as a consequence of the choices that other people make. The victims of 9-11 suffered directly because of the choices of violent men, terrorists. Victims of abuse suffer because of the choices of the abuser. And even many so-called natural disasters have this element to them as well. For example, we know that famine conditions in Africa are worsened by conditions of war there or because of corrupt or inept government. Uh, a former co-worker of my wife 
came to Canada from Ethiopia some years ago, and he said that famine conditions there, from his perspective, were entirely the fault of war and government. People in Africa would farm, but they can't because war moves them around and they can't stay on the land or their land is appropriated by government. And I don't know, maybe the woman in the picture that Charles Templeton saw was not just a victim of a lack of rain, but other forces. It's hard to say. On August 17th, 1999, an earthquake of 7.8 on the Richter scale struck Izmit, Turkey, leaving well over 10,000 dead and some 200,000 homeless. And yet it became apparent soon after that that much of the damage and even much of the loss of life was the result of poor building practices and structural deficiencies and, and cutting corners in terms of, of building code. Even the seed of the global AIDS crisis lies in human sexual activity. Some cancer is, just comes from the reality of living in a world that we have polluted. Okay, wars and genocides are results of human choices. Victims of murder and robbery and abuse and assault and rape. I mean, in many ways, too, there is suffering in the world because of the choices that other people make that impact those around them. The Catholic writer Peter Kreeft says, The overwhelming majority of the pain in the world is caused by our choices to kill, to slander, to be selfish, to stray sexually, to break our promises, and to be reckless. And so we often suffer and cause others to suffer by the choices that we as humans make. Now God certainly could prevent and eliminate this kind of suffering, but only if he overruled our, our ability to make choices and to make decisions for our life, or by stepping in and arranging things so that the choices that we make don't have some of these negative consequences. We need to be careful, I think, about shifting the responsibility for suffering away from ourselves and onto the shoulders of God. And I wonder if the question can often become not, why is God so unloving, but why is it that we are so unloving? Now, of course, the human dimension accounts for a great deal of suffering in the world, but it doesn't account for all of it. And so God is not yet off the hook, so let's continue. A third reason that we suffer, and related and yet distinct from the first two, is because we live in a world, a creation that is tainted by the effects of sin. Okay, the Bible teaches that when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, it wasn't just our human nature that was tainted and corrupted by it, but somehow the whole creative order has been set off kilter a little. There's ripple effects throughout all of creation. And so animals, too, get sick and die. Animals attack and kill people. Tornadoes and tsunamis happen, and people die because of it. Floods happen. People get Alzheimer's and pneumonia and Hodgkin's disease. And even though these are not the direct results of the choices that we and others make these days, the Bible says that this era where sin is a reality, all of creation is groaning and longs for redemption. And until that day, we simply find ourselves living in a world where people get sick and where natural disasters happen and so there is suffering. A fourth reason that people suffer is because of Satan and his demons, the evil forces that are at work. Interestingly, in Luke chapter 13 and verse 12, Jesus heals a woman who had suffered a physical deformity for a long time. 
And in verse 16 of that chapter, he says that it was Satan who had kept her bound for those 18 years. The well-known story in the Old Testament of the book of Job sees Job suffering intensely because of what Satan had done in his life. And we as Christians, we believe in the spiritual realm. We believe that there are demonic forces at work that also act to bring suffering and to cause pain. And certainly in most instances, they they do it through human agency. And so the dynamic of our responsibility comes to the fore again. But sometimes it is just the demonic forces themselves that are at work. Some depression, some spiritual attacks, some physical illness is demonic in origin. Now, why doesn't God intervene in those situations? In fact, in the book of Job, God explicitly gives Satan permission to do this to Job. Why does God allow that? Well, that brings us to the fifth reason we suffer or source of suffering. And that is that sometimes it's simply because God is at work. In the book of Job, God was allowing this because he was using this experience to do something significant in the life of Job. And we're going to talk a little bit more about um, that element of, of God's work and suffering. The great flood in the book of Genesis, the ten plagues of Egypt in the days of Moses, the wars when Israel conquered the promised land, these are occasions when God was specifically acting to bring judgment on the earth because of sin. And the suffering of those events was a deliberate act of God in response to the, the prevalent, the overwhelming wickedness of people. And so even there, I'm kind of hesitant to make that God's responsibility because God's judgment in Scripture always comes after a period of grace and when people's choices have become so wicked and depraved that there's no more possibility of a turnaround. And God graciously waits until the last possible second until his intervening wrath becomes a necessity. Now, we need to be careful, of course, Never to assume that suffering is God's specific judgment. I remember when the AIDS crisis first came to our attention in the 1980s, and many Christians proclaimed it as God's judgment against homosexuality. And we need to be careful about attributing things to God when we just don't know. So five reasons or sources of suffering. Our choices, the choices of other people, the reality of a broken creation, Uh, demonic forces at work, and sometimes God at work. And all of this has to do with the important question, why is there suffering? And that's a question that we often ask. Before exploring the relationship between God and suffering a little further, there's another element we need to consider, and that is the question of whether pain and suffering should be removed. Are they inherently bad things? Now, there is a sense, of course, in which suffering and pain are out of place. They are not how things should be. They, they're indications of the fact that creation has been tainted by sin. We'll come to that in a moment. But God, in fact, promises that he will do away with all suffering and pain in eternity. But in our present existence, would it be a good thing to eradicate all pain and suffering? Well, the pain of a toothache is a good thing in that it lets me know that I need to make an appointment to see the dentist before all my teeth rot and fall out. And all of our growth in character, growth in character and mind, comes through a sort of suffering in which we push ourselves beyond what feels good and comes easy. 
and break through to new levels of development. And sometimes the more profound the suffering, the greater the benefit to us. Sometimes it is through suffering, sometimes through crisis, sometimes through pain, that we get in touch with our need for God and for each other. And without the reality of pain in our lives, all of us would remain stunted, both personally and spiritually and mentally and emotionally. Consider this analogy. I think it comes from C.S. Lewis, an animal that has its leg caught in a trap. And to free the animal, you may have to push its leg further into the trap in order to spring the relief, release and set the animal free. Now, the animal thinks that you're an enemy when you're inflicting pain for a moment. But in fact, that pain is necessary to bring freedom to the animal. And maybe God is like that. Maybe God causes pain sometimes in order to move us into greater levels of freedom or to set us free from something that is hurting us. And maybe you think it's unfair to think of such grand-scale sufferings like war and famine in that category. But the truth is we just don't know, right? The Bible does seem to indicate that even the groaning of all of creation is part of God's allowance through which he will accomplish a greater good, not just for us, but for the redemption of all of creation. And even though I certainly don't understand it all, these kinds of things help me to trust God for what I don't know. Now, everything that I've said so far has been directed to the head. I've tried to, tried to give facts, tried to give a little understanding to clarify the picture a little bit, and I hope that it's helpful. But the reality is that suffering is a question of the heart for us. I mean, even if you could say this morning, well, yeah, I guess that makes a certain amount of sense. The next time that you are faced with a real and horrific pain, either in your own life or because you see it in the world around you, your heart will still wrench and you will find yourself again asking, how can God allow this? Where is God in this? Can God be loving? And this is where I think the God of Christianity really shines. Because we don't want a God who will remove our ability to make choices. We don't want a God who will arrange things so that my choices and your choices have no consequence, therefore don't matter. I don't think we want a God who will remove all the hardship from our lives and all suffering from human experience. I mean, such a God would seem, I think, removed from us, would seem unemotional and impersonal even mechanical. What we really want, I know what I really want in my heart. I really need a God who is present in suffering, to give strength and to give comfort in suffering. We need a God who knows suffering and understands it. And we need a God who can redeem suffering. And that is the God who is. That is the God who really is. God is present in suffering. The Bible says in Psalm 23 that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil because God is with us. And many of you have experienced that. That it was in the midst of suffering, after the funeral, or at the hospital bedside, or in your grieving heart. It was there that God was most near to you. And it was then that you knew the love of God most profoundly. Isn't that what we most deeply want? 
A friend is not someone who steps into your rescue to fix every situation and to make life easy. A friend is somebody who holds your hand and walks with you and cries with you when life is hard. That's when the depth of relationship is forged. That's when you know what it means to be loved and to be cared for. And God is that kind of friend. When we have a funeral in church, in the moment just before the service begins, I'm usually upstairs with the family, and I will often pray with them and almost always will give them these two verses from Scripture, God's word to them in their grief. They're both from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 13, where God says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. And Isaiah 54, verse 10, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my love for you will not be shaken, or my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God does not send a card or give you a phone call or yell from the sidelines, hang in there, you can do it. God is present in suffering to sustain and to strengthen and to carry us through. And we might not know it. Sometimes our grief is so acute that we are blind to the presence of God. But even then, it is his strength that is carrying us. God is present in the middle of suffering, walking through the valley shadow of death with us. And God redeems suffering. We don't need a God who will remove all suffering, but we need to know that God is greater than suffering. And that suffering at the end of the day does not win. And it's precisely God's power and his love that ensures the redemption of our suffering. Often it's redeemed even in our own life. Uh, The ministry of the mustard seed downtown in Calgary um, arose from the passion and the vision of Pat Nixon, who was himself uh, as a young person living on the street. And out of his suffering is born a ministry that touches literally thousands of people. I know a man who leads an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and his own experience as an addict gives him a platform to minister with credibility to other addicts. Uh, When Sean Cain was in the hospital a couple years ago, some of you know him, he had a very significant conversation with someone about Jesus and about the real things of life, and that conversation could not have happened if Sean Cain hadn't broken his ribs and ended up in the hospital. God redeems suffering, brings good out of suffering. The ultimate evidence of this is, of course, the crucifixion of Christ, by whose suffering God effected our forgiveness and our own redemption. And God is always on the move, taking pain and redeeming it, bringing good from it, forming our faith and our character in the midst of pain. In fact, the book of James chapter 1 says that trials and testing develop perseverance, and perseverance is necessary to bring us to maturity. Like fire refines gold, so suffering refines our character. It strengthens our faith, and so on. And God has also promised, not just in this life, that God will work out everything for our good. Your grief, your back pain, your job loss, Your stroke, the accident, your cancer, everything, God says, I will work it out for your good. And at the end of it all, we will see that even those dark threads 
are a necessary part of the beautiful tapestry that God is weaving in each one of our lives. And then in eternity, his beautiful promise that for all of the suffering that his people experience here on earth in this life, the glory that awaits will far outweigh it. Those are his his words, will far outweigh our suffering. And those who endure hardship here will will receive a reward infinitely greater. And God's guarantee is that for his children, no matter the extent of the suffering that you experience here, it is but a blip on the screen in light of eternity. God is present in suffering. God redeems suffering. But finally, and I think most importantly for us, God knows what it means to suffer. The God of Christianity is a suffering God. He knows the pain of losing an only son. He knows the pain of rejection and of scorn and of mocking. The Bible uses our marriages as a picture of the relationship that God wants to have with his people. And yet in that marriage, in the books of Hosea and Jeremiah especially, you see God as the wounded and betrayed partner in that marriage of an unfaithful spouse. God knows the suffering of a wounded heart. And Jesus no suffering. There's a play called The Long Silence, and I wish I knew who wrote it. I don't. But it includes this story. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. And most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? snapped a young woman. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a young man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes murmured, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. And far across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger, no hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a young black man, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic. And in the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. And at last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. And their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured brutally. And at the end, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then, in pain, let him die. 
Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let the great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. How do we reconcile the reality of suffering with a God that we claim is both supremely powerful and infinitely good? There is only one place where we can reconcile those things, and that is at the cross, where God entered into the reality of sin and of suffering, not only to take it upon himself, but then to redeem it. It's the cross that is the proof of God's love, for Jesus gave his life for our sins in order to give us life and bring us to heaven. The cross is almost also the demonstration of God's power, in that it is by his death that the backs of sin and death and the backs of the forces of evil were broken. It is because of the death of Jesus that we have God's guarantee of glory for us and the end of crying and mourning and death and pain and suffering. And it is because of the cross of Jesus Christ that we know the presence and the redemption of God in our suffering. And that we know his understanding as a suffering God, one who says, I know what it feels like. And it is because of the cross that there is both comfort and strength for us. And to the question of suffering in our lives and in the world, the suffering in light of the power and the love of God, Christians have always pointed to the cross and said, the answer is here. This morning we are going to celebrate, as we do regularly, uh, what we call communion, where we remember the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered for us, entered into our suffering, where we are reminded of what he did in order to redeem us from our sin and our suffering, and to bring us to himself where there is life and joy and the ultimate promise of eternity without suffering. And as we do that, I would like to, like to have us think very consciously about what it means that Christ suffered and laid down his life for us, for us together, but for you as a person. I'd like to have us consider very consciously what it means that we have been forgiven of our sins and the love and power of the cross and of his resurrection in our own lives. So let us consider that this morning. As we prepare for communion, we're going to sing. Uh, I'm not going to pray. Prayer often sort of transitions from one thing to another. We don't want to transition. The message just continues as we sing and as we come to the table. Let's prepare ourselves for communion when we sing hymn number 554, uh, the old rugged cross, and, and remember the death and suffering of Christ. Hymn number 554, and we'll stand to sing this, and I'll invite the deacons to come during the last verse or two to prepare the table.